As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Welcome to Ask N.T. Wright Anything. I'm Ruth Jackson, and today we're bringing you an episode from the archives. In 2019, Tom Wright fielded listener questions on evangelism in a post-Christian world, whether we can know that Jesus is the only way to God, and how to talk about Jesus with a Muslim. And Tom also got his guitar out again, which I, for one, am very excited about hearing. Don't forget, if you want to ask N.T. Wright anything, then subscribe to our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com and we'll send you the link to submit your questions, as well as giving you access to hours of bonus content. So let's join Justin Riley putting your questions to Tom Wright from 2019. It's great to be sitting down with you again, Tom, to uh, to record another edition of our podcast. Um, we're trying to segment these up into different themes as they come in with various questions. And a number of the questions that came in uh, were on mission and evangelism. That's the broad title I've given them. Um, do you ever think of yourself as an evangelist? Yes, in a sense, yes. Um, In a sense, no. Let me explain both of those. What I spend my life doing mostly is trying to explain the New Testament and what it's all about, and particularly trying to present who Jesus was and is Mm. and the meaning of his death and resurrection. And it seems to me that is to be talking about the gospel, the good news, and trying to present it to as wide a readership and audience as I can. However, when I preach, I haven't found it my main vocation, as it were, to be preaching to the rank outsiders. I've done a fair amount of that, but I think my vocation has tended to concentrate on teaching Christians, people who are already part of the faith community in whatever way, um, how to understand their faith and how they can be living witnesses. And in particular, I remember when I was quite young being disappointed because I heard a lot of sermons about how we should all be bringing our friends to the Lord and um, explaining the faith to people so that they would become Christians. And I've done a bit of that, and I've prayed for many friends, some of whom have become Christians and some of whom haven't, often without me having anything to do with it other than praying. And I know some people who are very gifted, what we call personal evangelists, and that's simply not been my vocation. I've had all sorts of other things to do. And I sometimes regret that, but then I think, well, actually, my life's been quite busy. Well, it has. Um, Let's start with a very simple question from Dan in London, who says, what do you think is the best way to evangelize our friends? And how can the church best re-evangelize the UK in battle indifference? Two quite different questions. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. Well, of course, there is no one size fits all. Mm. And uh, when I look at the early church, 
I see them not simply as a bunch of people who were talking to people about Jesus, though they were doing that, but they were a community who were living in a radically different way. It's hard for us to realize just how different it was in a world where everyone worshipped the gods and the goddesses, in a world where everybody lived in the normal pagan way, then suddenly to have these people radically changing so that they no longer went to the festivals of the god Apollo or whatever it was. They no longer did the, 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 the processions and the sacrifices. This, this is actually deeply socially disturbing. But then people realized that this same community were being kind to the poor and were looking after the sick and were um, working hard in education and to teach people to read and, and so on. What on earth is all this about? And they seemed no longer to be angry and hostile and, and so on, but were living in a totally... And people would say, don't know what you've got, but it seems to be a new way of being human. Mm. And in the middle of that, when they talk about Jesus, <laughs> then, oh, this makes sense. These stories about this Jesus, no wonder you live like this. Now, when the churches in the UK are visibly countercultural in that way mm. and are living a cheerful, radical new way of being human, then talking about Jesus will make sense. And in, in Surprised by Hope, I think I argue that um, there are two things in particular. The gospel is about God putting the world right. If we don't care about putting the world right, in other words, if we don't care about justice, globally, locally, whatever, mm. then we can say all we like about Jesus, but people won't hear that in the right mm. resonance. Mm. Likewise, the gospel is all about the God who made a stunningly beautiful world going to remake it so that its ugliness is stripped away and a new wonderful beauty will emerge. Mm. If we don't care about beauty, about the arts, about music, about um, all the beauty of this world – then no wonder if we present Jesus in an ugly way if mm. people don't see mm. the point. So there's a larger context within which then we can actually and, talk. And I think you're right that a lot of the church is has woken up in recent years to the fact we need to do this in a holistic yeah, way, absolutely. in a way that, that represents the best in, in that way. But is, is there still a place at some point for presenting the quote-unquote gospel message? You know, oh, Billy, Billy Graham died of last course. year and, and he um, was probably the archetype of the 20th century for... Yes, doing that yes, to large yes, crowds. Yes, and that yes. sort of, I think, has informed the way a lot of Christians see their duty to, at some point, yes. present the challenge of the gospel to an yes, individual. Yes, yes. I mean, the challenge has to come home to, to individuals and, and families and so on in all kinds of ways. But Billy Graham in the 50s and 60s particularly was largely speaking to people who'd been to Sunday school, mm. speaking to a culture that still thought of itself as vaguely Christian, certainly in Britain and America, um, in a way that simply radically isn't true anymore. Mm. Um, most people today have not been to Sunday school. Uh, uh, most people today haven't ever darkened the doors of a church except possibly for a friend's funeral or yeah. something, or maybe to get married or something like that, and have only the minimal idea of what it might all be about. And so in a sense, you have to start further back. Where do you then have to start further back? With rationalist apologetics, you know, arguing reasons why mm. there might be a God. Well, possibly that might work for some. Um, but that is only one of many ways in. And mm. it seems to me, actually, the lived 
community is one of the key things, a church that is actually being the church on the street. In, in a um, sense, the very first Christian communities also were reaching a culture that knew nothing of, course, of their claims of course, and so absolutely. on. So we're in a sense in the same boat to we some are. extent. And, and, and there's a heck of a lot we can learn from the first and second century church about this. Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, a famous book, is, is really helpful on this because he makes the point – you know, that, that Christianity did not spread by the great brains passing ideas to other great brains who developed them. And then there was a sort of trickle down effect. That's going on. That's part of the scaffolding, the structure. Mm. But the reason people became Christians was because their neighbors were behaving differently. And the way they were behaving was deeply attractive. And they wanted to know why. I must ask some more questions from uh, people who've emailed in. Uh, Colin in Gateshead says, um, why do you think that the biblical message of repentance and remission of sins through the name of Christ has largely been replaced with a more visitor-friendly version, which doesn't spell out repentance, taking up our cross, and omits the place of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? There's quite a lot involved in that question. Yes, there is. And I'm not sure you can generalise like that. Mm. Um, Part of our difficulty is that the word repent to us means you've been a very naughty little boy and you need to say sorry and and mm. it's we sort of cower away from that and okay there are things that I've done that I know are wrong and I do need to hear that message mm. and I hear it and I repent that that is part of it but in scripture repent is much bigger than that. It's a change of mind and a change of direction and a change of lifestyle. Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about confronting some brigand leader. At the, in, in, this is in the mid-60s in Galilee. And he says, I told him to repent and believe in me. What does that mean? Mm. It means I told him, you're going about things in the wrong way. I've got a better plan. Come with me. Um, and when we hear the gospel like that, then we still have all the, you're a sinner and you need to stop sinning, but you have it in a much larger framework. And yes, I do think that we have um, often found baptism quite difficult to get our minds around, partly because we still live in a culture which thinks of baptism as something that gets done to little kids who know nothing about it and then nothing seems to happen thereafter. And I think we have to reclaim baptism. Most of the rest of the world, interestingly, knows perfectly well that baptism is a radical break with the old life and a radical entry into the new life. I have had the privilege of baptizing people who have come from uh, countries like Iran uh, and come because they were finding their way into Christian faith. And they know perfectly well that their family back home see their baptism as basically a death, um, which is, of course, what the New Testament says it is. So I, I, I would agree that there's a lot more we need to do, but I don't think we can generalize. I think there's a lot that is being done quite creatively. Uh, Jean in northeast Derbyshire says, uh, I've had trouble answering this question from a friend to her satisfaction. How can I know for sure that Jesus is the only way to God? <laughs> I think knowing for sure is something that our culture is so keen on doing. Um, how can I know for sure that Sibelius's Seventh Symphony is the greatest symphony ever written? I can't actually know that. I, in, in my bones, I affirm that. Um, and other people will disagree and we can have the debate. Um, but in terms of when, say, in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Theologians have struggled with, well, what about people in other cultures who seem to be feeling their way towards this loving creator God? Um, and they've said, well, somehow Jesus is at work through the Spirit in many different cultures. Now, I 
have it as an absolute maxim. God can do whatever God wants to do. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. The wind blows where it wills, and we hear the sound, but we have no idea where it's coming from and going to. So that's basic. I cannot control that. I can't tell God what he can and can't do. However, when I see the great story of Scripture, I see the story of creator and cosmos converging onto the story of Israel. And part of the question is, do I really have to believe that the Jews were God's chosen people? Mm. And the answer is, well, actually, yes, you do. Right. Um, so that there is something about the Israel story coming down to the Second Temple Jewish story, which, as a faith statement, is where God's story with the cosmos is going to land. Our whole Western Enlightenment story, uh, story rebels against that. Mm. We think it's undemocratic. If God was going to reveal himself, it should be exactly the same right across the right. board. The answer is no. This is what we call the scandal of particularity. And then the Jewish story converges on Israel's Messiah. And so in a sense for Jean and her friend, there there is a sort of scandal. Yes, there, yes. There, there is – I mean – even if her friend sees it as an arrogant claim, yes, if it's true, yes, yes. then it's true. If it's true, then it's true, although the word true itself is slippery, <laughs> as we know. But I think the minute the claim feels arrogant, we are falsifying it okay. because the Jesus who we're talking about is the Jesus who died on the cross to reveal the generous love of God. And as soon as it's, oh, well, you know, my Jesus, so I'm, I'm kind of special mm. because I'm one of his, one of his friends um, – I had a friend uh, some years ago who at a conference somebody gave him a t-shirt to wear and insisted he put it on before he knew, knew what it said and it said God loves you but I'm his favorite and, <laughs> and the answer is uh, no as soon as you find yourself thinking that this is not a good place to be. I mean it naturally does lead into that question what about other religions yes, what about yes, other cultures yes. places that may never have heard of Christ and so on I mean a huge question that we could spend a whole other podcast debating yes. but uh, it's a if, curious if that's thing. the next question, where might you go? Well, it's a curious thing because when you look at the New Testament, they knew perfectly well that the world was full of other faiths. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, then, as Paul says in his speech on the Areopagus in Athens, God, the creator, is not far from every one of us and wants all of us to feel after him and find him. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's how things have been. And now this very specific message about Jesus brings the inarticulate into articulation. So it's, that's perfectly okay to okay. go that route. Uh, the, the interesting thing is this question of what about the other faiths? People have grabbed onto it in the last hundred years or so as though, oh, my goodness, this is something that mm. might just rock up. I say, get used to it. <laughs> the early church knew perfectly well. They, that were, they were surrounded sorts, by yeah, other absolutely. belief systems. And yeah. not all other belief systems are benign. Mm. A lot of belief systems have been and are extremely dehumanizing and damaging. And if you look at the ideologies of the last 200 years, mm. then, well, excuse me, are you going to say that the Hegelian or Marxist philosophies that drove Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, mm. are we going to say, well, yes, that's one way to God? I yeah. want to say, no, those yeah. are idolatrous. They are dehumanizing and the gospel confronts them and says no. Inevitably, there are some people that we speak to and have those kinds of conversations with who may believe that they have a revelation of, of a particular view of God. And Daniel, interestingly, in Beirut, asks, how would you explain the good news to a Muslim? Now, he asks mm. in two minutes. I won't force, <laughs> force that particular time frame on you. But. I, think, I think it depends. There are great varieties of Islam. 
and I am not at all an expert on that. I have read the Quran, I have taken part in some Christian-Muslim dialogue, um, so I know just a little bit about it, but it's not where I have been called to work, so I would be very, very cautious. And depending on whether this Muslim is somebody who is likely to be very hostile to the faith, in which case we would have a very gentle opening mm -hmm. conversation and maybe look at some passages in the Quran and the New Testament which were similar but subtly different and discuss that. That's a great way in, by the way, to, to, to have scriptures open in front of us and to see the similarities and the differences. But ultimately it is about Jesus because the Muslim reveres Issa as mm -hmm. a prophet and Jesus himself talks of himself as a prophet. Mm -hmm. But now it seems as though this prophet is going a bit further than that. What does that mean? In what way is he more than a prophet? And what would it mean if he were Israel's Messiah? And then, of course, all sorts of other questions come in about Isaac and Ishmael and, and all that, which takes it way back. But ultimately, then, it's about the message of the cross and the message of this God who we see in Jesus is the God whose self-giving love takes him in the person of his son to die on the cross. And that is something which the Muslim has, by definition, almost ruled out. You, you said you've had the privilege of baptizing Iranians who have mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. become Christians. Uh, and has there been in that sense a, a kind of that kind of journey they've gone on theologically. It, from, it's extraordinary. The Listening to their stories, and I've heard this from several sources quite independent, there are people in the Muslim world, apparently, who have vivid dreams of Issa uh, without ever having read the New Testament, without ever having been talked to by a Christian. And I have no explanation for this, mm. but it does seem to happen. And then they go looking. I want to know more mm. about because I had this dream. Who is he? And then sometimes they get hold of a New Testament, which may itself be very risky. Mm. And then sometimes they come to faith, and then sometimes they have to get out quickly and come to the West. So um, this is this is a toughie, and I pray for the people who work in that area. Um, and I observe that that God is on the move in very strange and interesting ways. Turning to the wider question of uh, peace and justice, and that sort of missional aspect of of the Christian Church in the world. Um, this one, uh, interestingly, from El Salvador, Vic writes in to say. Archbishop and martyr um, Oscar Romero was just canonized by the Catholic Church. He had a strong stand against injustice. But nowadays, injustice is still prevalent in politics and there's severe gang problems uh, where Vic comes from. Uh, how can the church respond and what evidence is there in the Old and New Testament that violence is actually a consequence of the church's disobedience? Uh, and Vic goes on to say Catholics and evangelical Protestants add up to about 90% of the population. I presume he means in mm -hmm. El Salvador. And yet these problems mm -hmm. of violence mm -hmm. and injustice still exist. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, we've had it much closer to home than El Salvador from the British point of view in, in Northern Ireland, where mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the two warring sides in the troubles in Northern Ireland called themselves Catholic and Protestant. Now, many Catholic leaders and many Protestant leaders would say, not in our name, we, we are mm -hmm. not blessing that violence. However, there's lots of grey areas, and lots of people saw the British presence in Northern Ireland as oppressive and as itself unjust, and hence needing to be resisted in the name of resisting tyrants, and people will invoke Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whatever. So part of it is a matter of how you read the signs of the times and, and, and the situation you're in. And along with Oscar Romero, if I remember rightly, um, on the West Front to Westminster Abbey is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and Romero was advocating peace and clamoring for justice against violence, and Bonhoeffer was prepared to join in a plot against Hitler. So th that's always been ambiguous. Mm. Um, 
And yet both of them are seen, well, Bonhoeffer hasn't been canonized, he wasn't a, wasn't a, a Catholic, but um, both of them has been seen as saintly in some ways, as Jesus-like in some ways. And that represents something of the ambiguity of the whole Christian tradition. I've always worried about Bonhoeffer, but then I am not living under Hitler, thank the Lord. And uh, he agonized and prayed mightily and wrestled hard with the question of what to do when faced with utter utter destructive tyranny. Mm. Um, do you just sit back and say, well, I'm keeping my hands clean. And, and I honor those who've had to struggle with that. Romero, obviously, gunned down while celebrating mass, you know, having, having denounced the principalities of powers for what they were doing, that, that is a much more obvious sort of sign of a Christian witness. But um, right from the beginning, the question of violence was raised by early Christians. For instance, if you're an ordinary person in the second or third century and you, your job is to be a soldier, um, what do you do about that? Mm. And some Christians said, well, actually, I have to give that up. And others said, no, this is a job that one has to do and we can't help that. And I think as with many callings, there are ambiguities and we live with that ambiguity. And there are many people in Scripture who we see living with ambiguity. Mm. Um, but when it comes to Christians in the name of Christ using violence, then it seems to me a line has been crossed, which probably means that a line was crossed some way earlier when people stopped realizing what the gospel was actually about, mm. God taking the force of the world's evil on himself in order to make a new creation. And this is a very interesting. In some Jewish traditions, the Sabbath is seen as a, an anticipation of the age to come so that you don't kill even a fly on the Sabbath because in the age to come, all species will live together. Right. Now, Jesus inaugurated the great Sabbath. That's what his sermon in Nazareth is, is all about. Um, does that mean that we Christians should live as Sabbath people, as Isaiah 11 people? And I have many friends who would say, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I, I've never been a pacifist myself. Maybe that's just because I'm a muddled Englishman who hasn't thought it through. But I have, have good friends who keep on yes. saying, actually, Tom, you need to sort this one out. Yeah, same questions that were there for the first century Christians as well, in a way. Absolutely. Um, again, this takes us into broader cultural issues um, as to how we live Christianity in the modern yeah, world. Yeah. But Sean in Gainesville, Florida asks, uh, Christianity appears to be moving into a post-evangelical or even post-Christendom era. What comes next? What effect will it have on society? Will it become impotent without a reliance upon biblical principles, um, such as the uh, infallibility of scripture? Um, biblical literacy is at an all-time low. Uh, will the Bible even have a role in the new form of Christianity in a post-evangelical world, is the way Sean puts it. Which kind of comes back to that yeah. thing of, that you said yeah. Billy Graham was speaking mm, to people mm, who mm, mm, mm. essentially had... Yeah. knew their Bibles, yeah. at least yeah. to some extent. And today yeah. we yeah. live yeah. in a very different yeah. kind of yeah. culture. Yeah. I would say that the culture Billy Graham was addressing was a culture that had been to Sunday school, but what they'd learned at Sunday school was often um, how to behave yourself in the moment and pray that you'll get to heaven one day. Now, better to behave yourself and pray for God to be <laughs> kind to you after death than not, um, but... It's still not the gospel. It's still not <laughs> adequate. Um, and actually, one of the things that postmodernism, post-evangelicalism, post-whatever has done is to shake things up so that we can see a bit more clearly where some of the 
biblical integrations are. You know, I grew up in a world where either you were an evangelical who believed that Jesus died so that you'd go to heaven, or you were a liberal who believed that Jesus was doing the kingdom of God so we had to have better housing and better food and, and all the rest of it, and never the twain shall meet. Mm. Now, I think we all know today that that's a false antithesis. Mm. That when we read the Gospels, it's about Jesus doing the kingdom and dying to bring about the ultimate victory over the powers that corrupt and deface um, human life and, and all the rest of it. And so what I see is a younger generation excitedly exploring the biblical integrations which an older evangelicalism had actually missed out on. And I know, um, and that was a questioner from Florida, that um, when I have been to Florida and when I know Christians from that part of the States, there is still an older evangelical world um, in which the whole message is um, – here's the prayer that you pray so that you will one day go to heaven and don't mess with all that silly social pol- political stuff. And I've had many, many Americans um, say, yeah, that's that's where my church is, um, and then have asked me, how do I help them on from there? The, the good news is that the Bible itself will do that job when you let it free. And I don't see a world of Christianity without a Bible. I see a world in which all the new Bibles we've got, the new translations, the new study guides, whatever, ought to be fueling the next generation who are not content to drift along with the way that Christian culture has been in the West. But perhaps what you're saying to Sean in a way is, well, what has been conceived as the way Christians think of Scripture and their relationship to God may be changing, but that yeah. may not all be bad because no, no, it's exactly, an opportunity. Exactly. There's all sorts of things that we need to clear out, sort of old baggage that we need to get rid of. And see, for me as a biblical scholar, my life has been one of constant surprises that every few years I find myself tripping over another idea which has been there in Scripture all along and which I'd never really noticed before. And that's been enormously exciting. And I think we just have to work our way through that and find where God is taking us for the next generation. Hope that's been helpful, Sean. Um, Thanks to all of those who asked questions on this edition of the podcast. Uh, We got through quite a lot there, actually. Thank you. Uh, We've done quite well for 25 minutes or so. Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that replay from our archives. If you want to ask NT Wright anything, then subscribe to our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com and we'll send you the link to submit your questions, as well as giving you access to hours of bonus content. See you soon for more Ask NT Wright Anything. Okay, we've got to that point that we sometimes get to in the podcast where we hear a little something from the playbook of N.T. Wright. Uh, You're going to be drawing on one of your inspirations this time, uh, Bob Dylan again, um, and a classic, one that we probably all know and love. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, uh, I came into guitar playing in the 60s, as many of us did, and one of the great gurus was Bob Dylan, and we all learned the chords to Blowing in the Wind. And it's one of those things I've often said to people, you know, if you're studying the parables of Jesus, you think, well, how did the disciples remember all that? And the answer is, if, if you go around from village to village, and Jesus is t- telling more or less the same story again and again, you know it in the same way that my generation, 90% of my generation never saw the words of Blowing in the Wind written down. But if you start singing it, everyone joins in. It's part of the culture. So here we go. I should really have a mouth organ, but... uh... How many roads must
must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Can't whistle. How many years can a mountain exist Before it's washed to the sea How many years can some people exist Before they're allowed to be free Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. How many times must a man look up before he can see the sky How many ears must one man have Before he can hear people cry Yes, and how many deaths will it take Till he knows that too many people have died The answer, my friends is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind The answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall Nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks as a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.